Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I speak with Michael Ruskin. Now, Michael has an amazing story to tell about his parents' experience during the Holocaust. I've talked to people in the past that kind of speak about their uh, their parents and the, the crazy life that they lived. Uh, this is this is no different. This is uh, this is just a, a powerful story, a powerful story of, of love, a powerful story of the Holocaust, uh, a powerful story of of how Michael became who he is. I uh, I uh, found Michael because he wrote a book about his parents' experience. The book is called The Val: A Love Story and the Holocaust, and that is what makes this story so powerful. His parents shared a vow when they were being separated, kind of on the train platform, being separated, going to the Nazi concentration camps. They were going to two different places, and they made a vow that, you know, if they ever find each other again, if they both make it through this crazy time in their life, this terrifying time in their life, that they would meet where they uh, where they, they first well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let him talk about it. But they were gonna meet again, and um, you know they were going to to pick up where they left off. And of course, we're talking as Michael's parents, so that is exactly what happened. But this story, uh, Michael's going to tell you about his parents. He's going to tell you just briefly about some of their uh, experiences before being sent off to the concentration camps. Um, and you know the Nazi occupation in Lithuania. He's going to talk about kind of how the occupation began and some some lesser known parts of, of that, certainly in in that part of the world. So just interesting when it comes to that. And then we're going to talk, of course, about them re meeting, rekindling um, their their love. And then, of course, we're going to talk about them coming to to America. Uh, there's a stop in there too when it comes to uh, resettlement camps. I think that that's a, an interesting area that, that people don't know as much about. But yeah, so we're going to talk about just crazy experience that his parents had and, and the experience that so many others had and so many people didn't make it through. Uh, but his parents did and their their love story is is definitely one that could be could be a movie for sure uh, they come to america they make a, a life for their themselves and their family uh, move to brooklyn new york and uh, grow old together um, some some interesting things happen there too but yeah i mean there, there's not much more i can say this is just a powerful story i urge you to check out uh, Michael's book to learn a lot more about it. You know, there's so much to cover. There's times that I don't think all of my questions got answered completely because there's just so much, so much in there. And I know that there's parts that, uh, that he wants to make sure that he's reading the book too. So without further ado, here is Michael Ruskin. I'm here today with Michael Ruskin. Mr. Ruskin, how are you? Good. How are you, Jackson? Nice meeting you. Yeah, nice meeting you too. Hardest question of the whole night. Just introduce yourself before we get into everything. Okay. Uh, of course, my name is Michael Ruskin. I'm an author. I'm also a publisher and a researcher. Um, I've been in the field of writing for about 30 years now. Uh, my background is in human resources consulting. Um, I have an infinity towards ancestor ancestry, and I do memoirs for people. And one of my greatest achievements so far has been the writing of my book, The Vow, A Love Story and the Holocaust, which is a story about my mother and father during World War II and their experiences before, during, and after the war. Yeah, and I want to—we're definitely going to get you know deep into all of that story. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit before we even started recording. But my question before we kind of dive into their story is: Growing up, how much of of this story did you know? Was it something that you you know you kind of found out later, and that's why you started? Um, writing it down is it something that you always, you know, knew, and and then uh, I guess at some point decided other people should hear about it, or or how much of this have you did you grow up knowing? 
Well, growing up, Jackson, I didn't really know very much. They rarely spoke about their experiences. I did know um, my mother mentioned that she did have a daughter during her time in Lithuania. I didn't really press the issue because I didn't want to open up the wounds. Um, and I knew about um, my father actually traveling through three or four different countries looking for my mom after the war. That's bits and pieces. Like we would sit and watch a documentary called The World at War that was on TV every week. And here I am in the den watching the show. And little did I realized that the people I was watching on the TV screen were the same people that were next to me on my right as they were sitting there watching the documentary with me. But they didn't really speak that much until I found those documents, which I mentioned before we went on air. Um, in, in 1993, after my father passed away from a heart condition, my brother and I flew down from New York to uh, half the funeral. And then we decided about a week or two later, we were going to sell the condo. And during that time, I went over to the condo to straighten up before the people from the real estate uh, brokerage uh, people came over to actually look at the condo where I found these documents on my father's night table. And in that night table, there were documents that were written by uh, doctors and attorneys in 1964. And these were documents that were testimonies my parents gave to these attorneys and these doctors that were uh, that were used for reparations from the German government for the loss of their daughter and both my parents' families. And that was the first time I've heard of their experiences and it was quite a shock there. 11 o'clock at night in September of 1993, I'm sitting there reading these documents and it was quite a shock to read through what things I never knew about until I realized uh, what those documents meant. So it's quite yeah. a shock. I, I am. A, I'm sure that it was. And I want to kind of get into, you know, those experiences and, and what they, they went through, but I want to get to the beginning of, of their lives. Talk about where they grew up kind of the early days before, you know, I guess German occupation changed things a lot for them. Sure. Well, my mother, my mother was one of nine children. She came from the town of a town called Majek, Lithuania. It was about 35 minutes north of the capital, Taunus, Lithuania. My grandfather was a rabbi. Uh, she was one of nine children. Um, she was a very precocious little girl. She was very active in sports and in doing theater, um, along with the fact that they had a 50-acre farm where she took care, her and her siblings were taking care of the farm and all the chores that were involved. So she came from a rather um, large family. Uh, my grandfather was very well known. He ran a small synagogue in the town of Mishaik. Uh, people really admired and really respected him. He would have uh, spiritual gatherings in his home every week, and he would also hold services on Saturdays. Um, and they ran a very strict, strict household. Um, and my father, who came from a town of Kadan, Lithuania, was about an hour away from where my mom was. And he came from the opposite side, Jackson. He came from a very poor family. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side owned a haberdashery. He was selling like ties and uh, hats and gloves and scarves. Uh, he had a three, they had a three family, uh, I'm sorry, three, uh, three bedroom house. Uh, that was adjacent to their store. And most of his time was spent either at school or taking care of the store. And as I said, they came from a very poor family. Then my grandfather passed away at a very young age. And then it was he and my mom and my aunt that took care of the store until he left to go to a um, trade school to study to become an electrician. And the way it worked out was my mother and my aunt ended up um, going to a teacher's college in Kaunas, Lithuania in 1937, after they graduated from high school. And then my father ended up uh, going to Kaunas in 1938, where they actually met one another in the apartment building that they took a year before. And then my aunt ended, ended up introducing my uh, dad to my to my mother. Mm. So they came from opposite sides. And my mother was um, 
let's just put it this way. My grandfather was not very happy that she fell in love with my dad who came from what he thought was a common, a common family. And it was not good enough for a rabbi's daughter to meet someone who was on that level. Mm. But he convinced him, my grandfather, that he was a good man. And they went ahead and they got married in 1939. Yeah, I, I love that. And I know that this story, you know, has has a lot to do with with all their experiences during, you know, the World War II. But I want to, I guess, ask you, so you said they got married in 1939. How how soon before, you know, the the Germans started coming to to Lithuania did their relationship start? Was it kind of concurrent? Because that's around the same time that things began. I don't know about Lithuania, how how long it took, you know, the Nazis to come to, to Lithuania. But but did they have some time before you know all this started happening or was it pretty quickly uh, shattered? Well, Jackson, there's a backstory to this, which gets into a little bit of the history of the war. In 1940, uh, there was a um, th there was a non-aggression pact made between Hitler and Stalin that uh, Hitler was going to be. They had what they call the sphere of influence, where the the Germans would take over the western part of Europe, and the Russians would take over the eastern part, and neither one were going to battle each other. And they were going to stop in the middle of Poland and not inv invade each other's space, more or less. So in 1940, when the Russians arrived, um, they were they 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 actually annexed Lithuania, uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. They annexed those three countries, in which they took many of the property away from the local Lithuanians, and they ran these the, ran the country like a communist country. They took over the factories, the stores. They ended up sending a lot of people to Siberia who they thought were enemies of the state. And this included a lot of Jews as well as Lithuanians. And so in 1940, when they when the Russians took over, in the meantime, in 1939 in Germany, they invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. And they 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 just ran right through Poland. Uh, they just took over uh, uh, Rhineland, the Pol Poland, Czechoslovakia. And when they got to the border of uh, the Baltic, they ended up invading um, Lithuania in 1941 and pushed the Russians back into Russia. And so the Jews then at that point in 41 were then taken over by the Germans. So only a year before they were being persecuted for being Jewish by the Russians and in 41, the Germans came in and pushed the Russians out, and then they took over Lithuania. So the, the, the Jewish people had nowhere to go, and a lot of them were killed during that whole transition. That's that, that's that's a, a layer I don't think a lot of people necessarily know. Um, you know, it took a long time, even even after the war, for for most of that area to uh, you know to to be removed from the Soviet Union. I think we're still dealing with. With a lot of a lot of uh, repercussions from that, so I want to know now because um, I know that they eventually in the in the city they were in in Lithuania were were kind of placed into a ghetto. I want to talk about a little bit of that experience. Um, were they together at that point? And then also, kind of for people who don't know, what exactly is a ghetto? That was something that was kind of created before uh, before you know people were starting to be sent to concentration camps. Well, the ghettos actually started in Poland, really, in the Warsaw Ghetto. But this, this is what they, this is how they they had a systematic way of killing. Uh, it was genocide, the atrocities against the Jewish people and others. It wasn't not only the Jewish people; but it was also the Catholics and and any what they call undesirables, because you know they looked at them as the master race and they wanted to take over the world. And anybody that they were less than an Aryan people. They were not to be, they were not to live. So in 1941, when the, when the uh, Germans took over, um, they ended up telling all the Jews they had to wear Star David on the back and front of their clothes. They had to then uh, uh, ended up having to give up all of their belongings. Um, they were told that they could not walk on the street. They would have to walk in the gutter. Uh, they could not have any relationships of any kind with anyone who was 
anyone who was considered to be a, a non-Jew, they should have no, no exposure to any of these people. So what happened was during that time, Jackson, there was a lot of killing going on by the local uh, Lithuanians because they believed that the Jews and the Russians collaborated only a year earlier to end up sending all the um, Lithuanians to Siberia and also to kill a lot of Lithuanians. And so they thought it was payback time. So the Lithuanians ended up killing tens of thousands of Jewish people um, at the behest of the Nazis. Uh, when they first arrived, they would tell, they would ask the locals, where are the Jewish homes in this town? And the Lithuanians would tell them, and then the Germans would say, well, go get your machetes and your guns, go into those homes and kill those people that you believe uh, were against the, against the Lithuanians. And so that's exactly what they did. And in fact, my grandparents and my aunts and uncles were killed mostly by the locals. So during that time when all this killing was going on, um, the Germans cleverly said, we are going to put you in a ghetto for your own safety. And the, what they did was they would then end up taking them and giving them a, a, a landmass of about two to three miles and taking about 36,000 Jews and pushing them into a bob-wired area that usually would hold about five to 8,000 people where they would take those five to 8,000, move them out and move the Jews in. And they would bob-wire the town and not let them out. The food had to be given to them uh, uh, through the Germans. Uh, they weren't allowed to grow their own food. They were also um, getting involved with uh, raids that were being taken by the Germans, raids of the house houses in the uh, ghetto. They were called um, both the raids of going involved and getting involved with uh, taking various um, jewelry and different types of appliances. And then they would end up uh, beating up a lot of the Jews in those apartment buildings. Um, and then there was also what we call a, a lineup where they would end up putting the Jewish uh, population together in the town square. And then they would end up uh, examining those people to see if they were physically capable of work. And if they were, they were then put on work details. And those who were elderly or who were too uh, sickly, they would then take them over to the extermination building where they were exterminated. Now, during, uh, and I'm just moving quickly through this, 1944, on March of 44, when the raids were taking place in the apartment buildings, one of the last raids they had was called the Kindernacht, the night of the children's raid, when they went into the apartments and took all the children under the age of 16, and they took them and put them on a truck uh, and ended up wheeling them into the extermination camp where 1,600 children were killed that, that for over the next two days, along with some other elderly people. And during that time, my sister, who was only three and a half years old, was literally taken out of my uh, mother's arms and taken away by the SS. And so in my book, there is a portion there. There was a little girl there who was actually born and born almost on the same month, the same day as my sister. And she represents the 1600 children who were killed that that night uh, during the children's raid. So it was quite a, quite an experience. I can only I can only imagine, and you know, it, it it only gets worse because after this, they then are deported and and separated and put in separate concentration camps. I want to you talk a little bit about you know their their being deported, and then also you know the name of your book is deals with a vow that they made. So talk a little bit about uh, about that vow as well. Sure. So what happened, um, which is really astonishing, um, once uh, my sister was taken, it was only three and a half months later that um, the Germans were liquidating the ghettos and sending the remaining Jews off to the concentration camps. So in July of 1944, 
they took the remaining Jews of what there was about 36,000, only like 3,000 left, and they were deporting them on separate trains, one going to Dachau, the other one going to the Stutthof camp in northern Poland. And while my parents were on the train platform, uh, before they were shipped out, they made a vow. And by the way, neither one knew where they were going. All the Germans told them was they were being resettled for their own safety. Uh, so they were herding the rest of the Jews onto the boxcars. And here my mother and father are standing together. And my parents made a vow that that day that if they were to survive wherever they were going, they were to go back to where they first met in Countess, which was the capital city of Lithuania, to see if the other was still alive. So that was the vow they made. And so um, they then were separated. My mother was put on a boxcar for uh, Galantz, Poland, and my father was going to Dachau. And of course, the boxcars were filled beyond capacity. They had like 200 people on a boxcar. A lot of them died. They never made it. It was like an eight-hour journey in both directions. And they didn't. a lot of them died inside those boxcars. It was miraculous that anyone lived. And so when they were separated, that's, that's where the whole vow came up, where the vow of love story in the Holocaust, the moment that they ended up saying goodbye, they never even knew they'd ever see each other again. And so for nine months, they never knew. And so after that, and then, of course, in the camps themselves, the, the living conditions, the, the way that the atrocities that went on in both the Stutthof camp and Dachau was just horrendous. They would w work people to death 18, 20 hours a day, uh, starvation, rations, disease, typhus, and a lot of them were killed. They were just, they were, they worked them to death, Jackson. That's exactly what their strategy was. So they would get maybe three, four hours of sleep, uh, sleeping on the floor or on mattresses that were made out of paper, paper. Uh, no, the facilities there were not working. Um, and it was it was a horrendous and thousands and thousands had died. In fact, during um, during the Dachau situation, they were still trucking in or, or training in a lot of uh, out a lot of people from outside the camps. And it got so overcrowded in the Dachau camp that the Germans left the Jewish uh, population in those boxcars inside, they would not even let them out. And a lot of them died inside the boxcars. Mm -hmm. So when they were liberated, the, the Americans ended up finding those boxcars, realizing that the boxcars were not open. And when they opened them, well, they saw or, or dead bodies inside those boxcars that there must have been about 33 different boxcars inside those uh, inside the uh, right outside the camp that they never got in because there was just no room. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to talk a little bit about each of their individual experiences. But when you talk about just the living conditions, like I was telling you, I went to Dachau a few months ago. And the thing that just struck me just to kind of drive home the, the living conditions beyond just the, the work, you know, just the living conditions was, you know, the, the people who lived in these barracks were actually extremely thankful for the fleas and the disease and things in the barracks because it meant that the German soldiers wouldn't come in because they were afraid of, of catching that stuff. So that just shows how terrible the conditions were. They were actually sometimes thankful for all these terrible things just to get away from, you know, the, the SS soldiers. So I, I, that was eye opening to me, just how bad it must've been to be thankful for some of that, those things. So I, I just can't, I, I mean, I don't think any of us can, can fathom something like that. And your parents both went through their, their own individual situations. I want you first to tell us about, uh, because you, you talked about it a little before we started recording, um, how your father made it through. There Very few people did, uh, and how he did. I believe that he had a, 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 a skill that uh, was useful to the German uh, soldiers, but uh, it was, uh, it, it definitely wasn't something that uh, was very comfortable, I'm sure. So talk a little bit about that. Okay, well, my, after my father was liberated by the Americans uh, in 1945, he was sent to an infirmary. He was there for about three, four weeks. And of course, in the forefront of his mind was he had to find his wife. Uh, and so he was released from the hospital earlier than a lot of the doctors wanted him. 
to, to be, but he somehow convinced the administrator of the uh, infirmary that he, he, have a, he had um, a pass to actually get out of the infirmary and start his journey back to Lithuania, which was over 1,500 miles away. So he routed, he routed a, um, a, a route that was going through uh, uh, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and he stopped at these displacement camps along the way. He got there either by bus, by train, by walking, by GIs picking him up by truck and taking him to the next town. And on his way back to Lithuania, Jackson, he would stop at these displacement camp asking if my mother's, the people from the Lithuanian ghetto, because that the women were separated from the men when they were separating the boxcars. But he he went through about twelve or thirteen different cities along the way looking for my mom, and so this took about two months, two and a half months. And he finally, I'm not going to tell you exactly how they reunited because it's a very big part of the book. Mm-hmm. But he met a man in the street in Poland, a place called Balistok, Poland, and there he met, this man was in the same apartment building as my parents. And the man and his wife were the ones that picked up for my mom after she was hit in the head by the German SS after the, my my sister was taken. And so my man, the, the man in the street where they met uh, in Poland said he saw my mother only a couple hours earlier in the same town. And he was and he knew, he knew that my mother had typhus because they were heading for a makeshift infirmary about a mile away outside of town. And that's how my father realized that my mom was still alive. And of course, he ran up into the building. And I'm not going to tell you how they met, but it was an amazing experience. I remember they. my mom told me when I was about 16 years old, that when she looked up at my father, she, she was only hours away from death. She had typhus fever. She was on a cot. My aunt was looking over her. She was not going to make it. She looked up at my dad because, of course, she was started to hallucinate. She thought my dad was an angel to come back down to take her to heaven. So the first thing my mother said to my dad, he, she said, David, are we in heaven? And my father, of course, started, she, he was very emotional. He said, no, we're still here. and We're still alive. And I'm going to take you home. And that's, and so that's how they ended up. Uh, and, 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 but there's a whole series of events that happened before then. But it was an, a miraculous reunion after all that time because they didn't know either was alive for almost nine months. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I think I made my question a minute go too long. You've you've jumped ahead of me a little bit. I wanted I wanted you to tell us about the both of their experiences in the concentration camp. You talked about how your dad, I think, was an electrician and how he was able to stay alive. Talk about their individual experiences in the camp. We've already kind of learned about how he was liberated, but I, w- I want to hear a little bit of that first. Okay, well, what's very interesting is both my parents lived uh, due to the what they call the death march. That was very big back uh, during that time where where the Germans were liquidating a lot of the concentration camps. And all they wanted to do was to keep the Jews working for the German war machine. So they would transfer them over to different camps as the allies were invading from the east and the west. They were bringing them closer to Germany. So in my mother's case, she was on a death march that was going from Galantz, Poland, to the Baltic Sea, where they were going to get onto barges that were going to take them to Germany. And they were going to march 26 miles to the Baltic Sea. And it was during the harshest winter. It was during the time where winters lasted much longer back then. And they actually ended up um, getting about two miles away from the beach where the Germans were actually machine gunning these elderly people who walked all that way. A lot of them died on the death march itself because they had hardly any clothes, any food. They would they would house them in old churches and farms, farmhouses, just to get out of the elements for a couple hours and then get them back on the march. So these these uh, the marchers were getting killed in the water when the when they arrived on the beach. The Germans said, you're going to have to swim to the barges about 100 meters off of the beach. And of course, a lot of these people are so weak, they couldn't even walk. A lot of them were actually machine gunned in the ocean. That was one of the great tragedies. A lot of this was never, never really 
documented. And this information is all very, very evident when I contacted the Holocaust Museum. On that death march, my mother and fa my mother and my aunt were together. They were two miles away from the beach when a platoon of Russian soldiers came out of the bushes, out of the trees along the road. And there was a battle going on between the German guards and the Russians. And the Russians ended up killing a lot of the Germans that were guarding uh, the marchers. And my mother was liberated at that point, And then she was sent to a hospital. My father, on the other hand, was liberated by the Americans. And that was, they were going to go from the Dachau concentration camp to another camp in Southern Germany. But the Americans ended up surrounding the marchers and the Germans, and there was no, there was no gunfire. They just dropped their rifles. And that's where my father was liberated and then brought to the hospital. And weeks later, then he went on for his, what we call the, uh, the mission. That was the name of the chapter. It's called the mission. My father had the mission of getting back to Lithuania to find my mom. So they both went through the death march. It was very common back then, as I said, where they would just want to keep those the Jews alive to keep working on the military equipment or the military um, various clothing and supplies for the Germans just to keep the Germans war machine going and also kill the Jews at the same time. Mm, I, I gotcha. And I, I want you to tell us too, because you, you mentioned it uh, a little bit ago about how your dad was going from displacement camp to displacement camp, trying to, to find your, your mother. Another thing, I, I mean, I, I, everyone has heard of concentration camps. Most people have heard of, you know, the ghettos, definitely the Warsaw ghetto that you were speaking about, but I don't think as many people know about displacement camps, which is another step after liberation that was not necessarily easy either. But talk a little bit about what displacement camps were. Okay. So what happened is after the war, um, a lot of these refugees had no place to go home to. A lot of the, their homes were burnt. They were, they were destroyed. A lot of them did not want to go back to the East because the Russians were taking over these countries and are making it communist countries. So a lot of a lot of the refugees ended up going to these displacement camps, waiting to immigrate to either the United States, to Israel, to South America, to England, uh, all over. And they had to get sponsored to get into these countries. So you would have two, three, four thousand uh, refugees in these displacement camps all through Europe. What's interesting, um, very interesting story is that my mother ended up and my father ended up in um, a, a, a displacement camp um, that was called Fehrenwald. It was right outside of Munich, Germany. Uh, it was in the American sector. They had about four thousand uh, Jewish refugees in there. And my mother opened up the first school in that camp for the children whose parents died during the war. And when I was doing my research uh, with the Holocaust Museum, there was a picture in my book of my mother standing there with her children. And I'm talking about not her children, but the students. Um, and she got she received an award back in 1947 where she actually met General Eisenhower. And she, she, was, she was honored at an event. And in the picture I found in my parents' uh, photo album is my brother, who at that point was six months old. He was born in a displacement camp. He was in his baby carriage, and the baby carriage was positioned right in front of General Eisenhower and the dignitaries in the military who came to honor my mother and the teachers of that camp. It's, it's one of the most incredible photographs you'll ever see. So General Eisenhower is there in the photo, and my brother is in his baby carriage crying right in front of the, right in front of the general, who then, of course, became, the I think, the 34th president of the United States a few years later. So it was an incredible story. So getting back to the, so these displacement camps is how my, my father made his sojourn back into Poland as it was going back to Lithuania. And they were all over Europe. Yeah. And how, so how did your, your parents, how did they come to America? Were they, is that where they wanted to go? Is that just where they were sponsored? Talk about that, uh, that decision or maybe lack of decision. Well, there were, they had two options. They were there for close to three years in the displacement camps. My father was going, my father had a cousin in South Africa and he was going to be sponsored to go to South Africa where and then like a week or two later, they got a, a uh, telegram from New York City 
where my uncle on my father, on my mother's side wanted to sponsor uh, my parents coming to New York. So they had to make a tough decision. But of course, my mother won out. And so they ended up uh, pa- ended up um, getting on a uh, boat in Munich and took nine days to go across the Atlantic. And they ended up at Ellis Island in New York in 1948. So they had a choice at that point. But for for the, the years 1945 to 1948, they were in the in the displacement camp in uh, right outside of Munich, Germany. So they they made it here in what 1948. What uh, talk a little bit about their their life here? We talked so much about you know the the part of their life that was not uh, not pleasant. So let's talk about once they came here. What uh, you know what they made of their their life and I guess their their family, which is where you come along. That's right. I was born in December of 49. My parents ended up living in Brooklyn, New York. And my father ended up taking, my father being an electrician, uh, ended up uh, taking a job um, only a few months uh, after I was born. They were going to then end up moving uh, to New Jersey, where he became like a, a day laborer in a paint factory, making about $2.50 an hour. Um, but during the night, he was an electrician, so he made up for it by going into people's homes and fixing all the electrical work as well as businesses. So he did okay. My mother ended up becoming a seamstress in a sewing machine factory. Now, you got to remember, neither one of them spoke uh, English that well, so they were um, they had a lot of disadvantages. But they came from a really poor background. But they were very hardworking, very tenacious people. Um, they ended up, uh, actually, they ended up buying a home within the first five years when they were here, where they ended up buying an apartment building. They took one of the apartments. Um, but they, they had a very tough life for the first, like, five to ten years before they really started to feel comfortable where they lived. And they ended up uh, putting my brother and I through college. They gave my brother and I piano lessons at a very young age. And so they, to them, it was all about education and getting some culture. Mm. And of course, I didn't speak a word of English until I got into the second grade. They spoke to me in Yiddish. Mm. And so when I got into school, I was speaking to them in another language. They didn't understand a word I was saying. So, um, but eventually, um, you know, I ended up acclimating and it was, uh, it was an interesting childhood because you know, here there's a cultural divide between our families, also a generational divide. I looked at myself as an American wanting to play baseball and football and run around. And my mother wanted me to uh, be a little bit tamer and go to a, a Jewish seminary and trying to be raised in a really strong Jewish ba- background. And I was more interested in just having fun with my American friends. Mm. So wh- how do you think that, uh, I guess, the experience that they dealt with through their, their young life, how do you think it shaped their time here? How, how do you think it shaped how they, they decided to raise you guys? Well, um, in my case, uh, my mother was very sheltering. She would literally walk me to school every day, hand in hand, while my, my classmates were um, you know, walking among themselves. And they, she would be in the schoolyard at three o'clock to take me home. She was very, very... Uh, it was very. It was a very tough childhood in that respect because she was so fearful of losing me the way she lost her daughter. Mm. Um, now, as far as uh, other things, like my parents were very loving people. They, they, they. My mother would say to me, "Don't tell anyone we're refugees." They didn't want anyone to know about their past, but it was so hard for that to be hidden because they had such a heavy. European accent, you had to know they came from a different country. Um, But anyway, so she was very much um, to themselves in many respects. And there was a certain amount of suspicion because she had a number of friends who were not Jewish. And in the end, um, they really kind of turned on her, which is part, which is also in the book. Um, And so they, they, they kept friends who were refugees, uh, they had a few American friends. Um, they also had a thing about eating very fast at dinner because they, you know, they had such little food that as a child, I got, I, I picked up their habit of eating very quickly the way my parents did. 
And then uh, there were there was I remember distinctly on Thursday nights, they would go food shopping and they always come home with rolls and rolls of toilet paper. And when they would open up the closet door from the floor up to the ceiling, Jackson, there was just hundreds and hundreds of rolls of toilet paper. I didn't understand where why they needed so much toilet paper. But now I think I understand why. Hmm. But they, they had some and they had some very unusual um, habits that happened. But they were, you know, where they were. It was very traumatic. Um, obviously, they lost so much of their family. So their scars that were left uh, would never be uh, healed over. They would always have that suspicion in the end. It was very difficult. And plus, what made it even worse is my mother ended up with Alzheimer's disease uh, back in 1989. And she almost relived the German experience again when she was older. So she actually had to go through it twice. Hmm. So it was yeah. very difficult. I I can only imagine. Yeah, and, and I guess a, a light moment of of everything you just mentioned was how you said that you didn't you didn't speak English until the second grade. You are from the New York area, so maybe that would serve you a little bit. Do you still speak Yiddish? I, I actually have spoken with somebody who d- does because um, they you know I, I talked to somebody who took me into the. Hasidic Jewish community, which I think they're probably the only people in America still speaking Yiddish. So, do you still speak it? Ich verstehe alles uh, bissel. I mean, I I understand it yeah. more than I speak it. I but I, I mean, and you know, Yiddish is like a form of German and Polish, uh-huh. and um, and some German I understand, some Polish I understand. But as far as speaking it, if I come up with the words, but to run sentences together the way I used to. It would be pretty tough. But if you were to speak to me in Yiddish, I would understand every word you were saying. Well, I, I certainly don't. But I, I <laughs> did I did think it was interesting that, uh, you know, that's that is the language that they're that they're speaking in uh, in those Hasidic communities. I guess I, I want to ask you, you know, we, we just kind of shared their entire life story. There's so much more in the book. But what made you decide that you wanted to share this with others? What made you decide to write this book? Well, the book was meant to be a spiritual book, Jackson. I, re- I really wanted to make a contrast between the good and the evil, between Adolf Hitler and his destruction and his totalitarian ruling and the, and the way so many people died versus the strength of the human spirit that my mother and father exemplified while they were alive. Because honestly, if it wasn't for their love and their courage and faith and perseverance, they would never have survived. And so what I leave my audience with is that if my parents were able to, to tap into that internal spirit that they had to survive that kind of experience, then anybody can also go inside themselves to find the answers to any circumstance or problem they have that they need to overcome. You just got to understand the strength of the human spirit. And that's the, that's the message I want to leave my audience with, because that's very important. That's the only way they made it. When you consider that 97% were murdered at the hands of the Nazis and the collaborators to figure that both my parents lived when such a large percentage died. And that was the largest percentage of Jewish population of any other country in Europe. Lithuania had the most deaths among all the countries in Europe, percentage wise. Mm. So that's what I wanted to leave my, my, uh, my audience with. Yeah, and the, and I think that's a, a powerful thing. The human spirit is an extremely, extremely powerful, powerful you know thing. So I I love that. I want what you now to kind of tell us. You decided that you wanted to write the book. You've got your reasoning. You got your why and and why you wanted to let people, t- uh, you know, hear about your your parents' story. Once you got into it, did you find it easier or did you find it harder than you thought it was going to be? Talk about the experience of actually writing it because you know it it would be it'd be one thing to to write a you know a fiction story about this experience or you know read read history books and kind of try to create your own uh create your own story but this was the true story of your parents and all of the things that they went through so that has to be you know take it to a whole another level so i want to talk about your actual experience uh writing this down and, and learning maybe a little bit more about exactly what they went through. Well, it took me about a little over two years to write the book. And it was um, one of the greatest experiences I've, I've ever had. I, I'm going to tell you, Jackson, I remember late into the night, um, I was uh, typing away on my laptop 
And I will tell you as I'm looking at you now that my fingers would be racing across the keyboard as if it had a mind of its own. Mm-hmm. I, I could feel in my ears um, the, what my parents wanted me to say. Uh, the next morning I would wake up and look at what I wrote and I can't believe I even remember that that's exactly what I wrote. But I could feel their presence in that room while I was writing the book. And um, of course, I didn't know the dialogue. Obviously, I wasn't there. I knew a lot of their experiences from what I read in the in the documents from my cousin in Tel Aviv, Israel, who told me a little bit more and about information I got from the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Um, but while writing the book, the most difficult part was writing about the children. I mean, to this day, when you go in the book, you'll see these innocent children. You can't fathom how anyone would want to kill these innocent young children, three, four, five years old or even older, uh, that they could take a life of someone so innocent. When that chapter six that I wrote was the hardest chapter for me to write. Even to this day, when I go in there and I look at the photos, it was, it's very hard for me to, to look at them. But it was... Um, incredible experience. I mean, I feel the connection to my parents. Um, I never really appreciated them or told them how much I loved them when they were alive. Um, I didn't recognize all what they had gone through when I was alive. And when my brother died in 2008, and I was the last surviving member of my immediate family, I had to write this book. Otherwise, no one would ever know what happened to my family. And so I believe, you know, I could feel their energy around me. I'm sure that in a way, they never wanted me to talk about it. I mean, if they were still alive now, they would not like it because they didn't want anybody to know. But I think now they realize that they're probably, hopefully, they're proud of what I've done. And, you know, as I said, the book is going now internationally around the world. So it's, it's going to be very exciting going forward. Yeah, I love that. And I was going to ask you that based on on what you said earlier. How exactly do you think that how, how do you think they would take it? Because they, they did spend all this time not wanting you to, to share the stories, but it is such a powerful story. So I can I can only imagine that they'd be proud of you for, for putting it all down. Right. Well, you know, as I said, when I when I stand in front of my audience, I said, I'm you know, it's their story. It's their book. I only stand in their place to speak their words. This is you know, this is something that they could have done. I mean, we tried to get them on a recording. They did not want to do a recording. But I knew that if they had if they had the ability, they would they would they would talk about it. But they just couldn't because it would open up too many wounds. And also remember, in 1964, this was a decade more than after they were liberated. They had to go back and recount their experiences for the the attorneys and the doctors to to send testimony to Germany. They had to recount all this like maybe 12 or 13 years later about what happened back then. So I'm sure it was very difficult for them to actually sit there and give testimonies to the doctors and the lawyers. So, but I mean, I, I did the best I could. Um, I really believe that it came from my heart. And uh, again, this will be my legacy. I, I never had family. I never had children. Um, and so when I'm gone and I'm not exactly a spring chicken anymore, um, this book will be in the library. And, and that's what I want to leave behind. This to me is like the, the child I never had. And to this day, what I do is I autograph each book separately because you only can get my book off of my website. And I go to the post office every day and I end getting each book postmarked because they don't they can't send it out without a postmark on it because it's a big envelope. Um, but ev- almost every day I'm over that post office and getting each book sent out separately. And I sold you know thou- well over a thousand. It's only been about a year and a half now. So, but yeah, this is what I do. So to me, this to me is very personal. So I didn't go through Amazon. I didn't go through Barnes and Noble, no booksellers. This is coming right from my website. I love it. And I want you to tell people exactly what the website's called. If people want to connect with you, I don't know if you have other connection points, but here's your, your, uh, your, your time to kind of shout out where they're going to find the book and, and where they're going to connect with, uh, with Michael Ruskin. Okay, first of all, you can go to my website, which is thevowalovestory.com. And um, there you'll be able to order the ebook if you want. I know we're getting people from overseas that can't afford the shipping going over there. And by the way, shipping is free here in the States. Um, but the ebook's available and the, um, and the regular book's available. Also, my Facebook page is uh, facebook.com slash thevowalovestory. Um, and also, I'm on Instagram. 
And if you go to my website, you'll see all the photographs, all the testimony. I, I also have a media page, shows you the people who've read the book. Uh, I got all the ratings there. And as well as you'll, you'll be able to read some of the comments of the people who've, who've, uh, who've read the book. And, they, and there they can order the book right online. And of course, the Facebook page go, has a lot more photographs in there too. So it's a very powerful website. And that's where you can get the book, uh, thevowalovestory.com. And, or they can go to Google under my name or the book, Michael Ruskin. I love it. And all of that will be in the show notes. I, I really appreciate your time today. It's, it's a powerful story. And I, I think that you've, uh, you've captured it really well. So I really appreciate you. Thanks a lot, Jackson. I appreciate your time. So that was Michael Ruskin. Urge you to pick up his book. What a powerful, powerful story. I, I think that it's it's just so uh, it's a powerful story regardless. And you know the times you're living in now. Um, there, there's always conflict going on. There's always uh, you know anti-Semitics happening. We talked about that with uh, with Shlomi when when I spoke with with him about his Hasidic community. So I I think that it's it's powerful to learn the history of our our world and i and just as you heard in this conversation michael is is great at explaining some of that and i know some of that is in the book as well um so you're getting kind of the history of of lithuania during this time you're getting the history of of, the world war ii and then you're also getting a really really powerful love story between um michael's parents so urge you to check out the book i think Michael, for, for joining me. Uh, the links in, will be in the show notes to to check out that book. The link to uh, his website will be there as well. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, appreciate you being here. Go give a five-star rating on Apple and on Spotify. Leave a written review on Apple. Even more amazing. Follow along on Instagram, Not Enough Podcast. On Facebook, Not Enough with Jackson Huff. JacksonHuff.com. All kinds of places to follow along. Appreciate you being here. Appreciate Michael being here. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.